Well, thank you, worship team. We'll be hearing from them again here in just a little bit. But uh, we're going to dig into some uh, studying God's Word. My name is Brad Lagos, and I am the pastor of small groups here at Bethel. And I have the privilege of opening our July series for us here today, entitled Real Freedom. Throughout this series, our aim is to uh, identify several, several key struggles in the Christian life, struggles that often hinder our growth in Christ, challenges that often hold us in bondage, ensnaring pitfalls that can be real burdens for us. And as we identify these things, and hopefully as well, we'll share how God earnestly wants us to be free from them. We all want to experience freedom, don't we? Real freedom, true freedom. This is, this is absolutely true for every person here. Our nation has always been one of freedom, and we relish this fact. It's something we celebrate every year on the 4th of July. This is a holiday to commemorate our national identity and the freedoms that we have here. And let me tell you, having just come through this holiday, I have to say Hoosiers in Northwest Indiana really know how to celebrate the 4th of July. I have a little bit different perspective on this because I come from the suburbs in Illinois in the Northwest area of Chicago. And I don't know if you realize this, but on the 4th of July, in the neighborhoods in the Illinois side of Chicagoland, they are far more tame than they are around here. In Illinois, celebrating the 4th of July usually involves something like going to parade and then witnessing a controlled fireworks display <laughs> run by seasoned professionals at a safe distance. Because aside from sparklers, most other fireworks are outlawed. But here in Northwest Indiana, I can only describe the 4th of July as one massive free-for-all of dangerous and epic proportions. And you all know what I'm talking about. I'm sitting in my home last night on 4th of July, and I feel like suddenly I've entered a demilitarized zone. There's explosions going all around me, fireballs appearing into the sky, pyromaniacs running up and down the street shooting bottle rockets at each other. Crazy people literally blowing up an entire month's worth of income. And I can only pray that some reckless pyro doesn't shoot a Roman candle up on my roof and burn my whole house to the ground. It's chaos, sheer, destructive, unabashed pandemonium and anarchy. But we love it, don't we? We love it. We love to celebrate our freedoms here in Indiana, especially our freedom to simply blow things up. And we think to ourselves, those poor enslaved people in Illinois... They don't know what they're missing. Because we delight in our freedom. It is worth celebrating. It is worth pursuing. And hopefully this teaching series this month will help you more fully experience and celebrate some of the wonderful, tremendous freedoms that we can have in Christ. This week, the first subject we want to address is the subject of doubt. Now, doubt is defined in the Bible as a feeling of uncertainty or being unsure, skeptical about something. We all have doubts, don't we? We have doubts about our, ourselves, our jobs, our kids, our finances, our future, our health. Many of these doubts are justified and can be healthy. Like when you doubt you're going to do well on a certain exam, so you study harder for it. Or you begin to doubt that you think that this job is a good fit for you, and God actually uses that doubt to begin to move you into a different place for your life. These doubts can be helpful, but there are other doubts that are harmful and very enslaving. Doubts about God's existence, God's goodness, the Bible's truthfulness, our own salvation in Christ. These are the types of doubts we will address this morning. 
In doing so, this message has two parts. I will deliver the first, and then Pastor Chris will come after a time of worship and deliver the second. And our text this morning is a well-known passage of Scripture. It's one that many of you probably have memorized long ago. Let me read it to you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John three sixteen. It's a wonderful immensely rich verse, full of incredible truth. So much of that truth is often doubted. Just think about all the potential areas for doubt in this one passage. It begins, for God. It claims that God exists. It claims that God is real. Many people doubt this. They flat out reject it. Continues. People doubt that God so loved the world, that God is a person with emotions and feelings, that he personally cares for me. And this is a a common place of doubt, especially when times in life get difficult. They doubt that he gave his one and only son. Jesus Christ is real. The Bible portrays his life accurately and that he really accomplished salvation for us. And all the people who doubt this when they say, who really was the historical Jesus And they doubt that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And they question that when we die, is death the ultimate end, or is there an afterlife? And they doubt that a new, everlasting, joyful future can await those who believe in Christ's work. And even those who profess faith in Christ sometimes doubt that their faith and their salvation is real. It could be perhaps some of you this morning that fall into that category. And so this one verse identifies many, many aspects of Christian truth that people so often doubt. And let us try to address some of these now. And in doing so, for my part, I'm going to venture into a subject called Christian apologetics. And apologetics are simply rational reasons or evidences for the Christian faith. They are, in essence, reasons why we should not doubt. And so let me begin here by addressing two claims of Christianity, which believers can and should be free from doubt. First is this. First is that God exists. God exists. We should be free from doubting God's existence. This is, of course, the most basic area of spiritual doubt. Many people have this doubt. Most often they're called agnostics. But even committed Christians sometimes doubt that God truly exists. Of course, here at Bethel we believe, we teach, that there is no reason to doubt God's existence. Why is that? Why can we be confident that God truly exists The answer, I believe, simply put is this, that God has given us revelation that proves that he exists. God has revealed himself to us. He has taken steps to do that. And he has done so in a couple ways, through the specific revelation of of the Bible. And God's word talks at length about God and who he is. It affirms his existence on every page and in every paragraph. But skeptics easily explain this uh, argument away as a, as a circular one. They say, okay, you believe that God exists because the Bible says so. And you believe the Bible because you believe that God wrote it. And you believe that God wrote it because you believe that he exists. And you believe that God exists because the Bible says so. And you believe the Bible because you believe God wrote it. And on and on, and round and round you go until you get dizzy, right? It's a circular argument. Because of this, the appeal to um, specific revelation is usually unconvincing to the doubter. But in addition to specific revelation, we have something else called natural revelation that proves God's existence. Psalm 119, verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. 
The heavens declare it. The point is this. Just one look at nature itself and you must conclude that God does exist. The analogy is often given of a watch. The watchmaker analogy. It goes like this. Imagine you're out for um, a walk one day and you look down a path and saw a watch. You would naturally reason that the watch was created by someone, wouldn't you? This would be especially true if you examined all the intricate parts and gears that form it. You wouldn't think that the watch just popped out of nowhere, would you? That just somehow it naturally formed on its own. No, you would reason that the watch was there because it testifies somewhere there's a creator of it. There is a watch creator. And even though you don't see the creator, you know that the creator exists because there's no other way to explain the existence of the watch. In fact, as you study the watch, you learn something about this creator. You learn that that it was made with great intelligence and skill. And and you reason that this creator must have intentionally put this watch together. It is carefully and intelligently designed. There's, There's no other way to explain its existence, is there? And friends, when you look at the created world, from the intricacies of the human body to the incredible balance and symmetry of nature itself, from the amazing precision in which the microscopic world operates to the greatness and the grandness and vastness of the universe itself. Creation together itself, it testifies, it screams that there is a designer and a creator of it. Let me illustrate. We see here a picture of a watch, right? I just ask of ourselves, does this seem created or does it seem accidental to you? Does it seem created or accidental? Probably created, right? Well, what about this? Men don't salivate over this picture too much. But does this seem created or accidental to you? Created, right? What about this? Familiar landmark? Does it seem created or accidental? It didn't just grow up out of the ground, did it? It was, it was created. People built that. What about this? Is a space station as it presently looks in orbit. Does that seem created or accidental? Created, right? Thousands of hundreds of thousands of people may be working to build this thing. Immense effort at creation. What about this? You know what that is? This is the rotunda in the Capitol at the United States uh, Capitol building in Washington. Does that seem created or accidental to you? Created, right? Now think about all those images and apply that same logic now that you use to come to the conclusion that these things are created to this. How does that seem? Created or accidental to you? Use the same logic now. Well, what about this? It's a painting. Does it seem created or accidental? Created, right? Well, how is that different from this? You know what that is? It's the image, close-up image of Jupiter. And what about this? Here we have a picture of fiber optics, obviously something that's created, but how is that different from this? It's a close-up of a feather. Or we have this. It's a picture of a microchip, right? Obviously created. How is that different from this? What about this? We have a bunch of houses, aerial view. How's that different? All the balance and the symmetry there. How's that different from this? Probably don't know what that is. That's a close-up of broccoli, actually. (laughs) Makes me want to eat it even less. (laughs) But how about how about how about this? That's a fractal. It's a mathematical creation image. How is that different from this? It's a human iris. And what about this? 
And how is this great creation different from this? It's a proud dad on display right there. Now, applying the same logic to all of these images would lead you to the same conclusion for each, that we are carefully designed and intelligently made by a creator. And if mankind and all of our most ingenious efforts can only create a clumsy robot, imagine how much greater the creator of this universe must be to create a human body like yours or like mine with all of its intricacies and immense capabilities, staggering complexities. This demonstrates an immense creative power. And truly, I say you only need to look at scenes like this, the mountain range, or this forest, or this rock formation, or this large image in the sky, or even a beautiful sunset, to conclude that there is a creator behind all of it. The heavens declare the glory of God. Indeed, they do. And the heavens should erase any doubt that we have about God's existence. Yet many today refute this reasoning. And they say that there are sufficient natural processes to explain the rich diversity and staggering complexity in our natural world. And they turn to concepts like evolution. And in doing so, they cast doubt on God's existence, which is as rich, I believe, and undeniable as the earth itself. Now, to those of you who struggle to believe in God's existence because of what secular science professes or what evolutionary theory might say, let me tell you that there are scores of reasons to doubt and outright refute naturalistic evolutionary theory. I don't have time to get into this subject in any kind of detail, and so I encourage you to seek out many resources that are online or are in print that point out the seemingly endless problems with naturalistic theories about the origin of life. But just quickly to name a few. Here's just a few reasons why we have um, objections or reasons to doubt modern scientific claims about naturalism. First is this, that we have never been shown, life has never been shown to arise from non-life. It never has. Even with all of our intelligent intervention, we cannot create life in a lab. We cannot do it. And so if sophisticated creations like ourselves cannot make life in a lab, how can it happen on its own? In a pool of primordial goo without any attempt to put it together. We can't do it. How could it happen on its own? Second, matter never spontaneously organizes itself to the level of complexity necessary for life. It is true it sometimes spontaneously organizes itself a little bit, as in the case with a snowflake or crystals, but never to the type of complexity that is necessary for life. You can't just throw a bunch of Legos into a bucket, shake it around for a while, and all of a sudden have a house little model house. No matter how long you shake it, Legos aren't going to just put themselves together like that. And the same thing is true. You can't just take a a bunch of proteins and enzymes and mix them around, stir them together, zap them electricity, and out pops DNA. doesn't work. The origin of life would have had to require some guidance, some intelligence to put the Legos together because matter cannot spontaneously organize itself into the complexity needed for life. Third, the fossil record about the origins and development of life is far from conclusive. Evolutionists believe that the fossil record proves the gradual development of life species over time. But many people in the scientific community say that it proves actually quite the opposite. Because in the fossil record, what we find is not tons of gradual transitional states. What happens is species appear and then disappear in the fossil record exactly the same throughout. 
So we don't see the gradual forming of a species and the gradual morphing in another one. Species appear to be in stasis rather than in, in a state of perpetual flux, as you would expect if evolution was occurring. And so there are problems with the fossil record, for sure, and many more that could be named on that subject. And lastly, I would say we have never observed firsthand the natural evolution of a new species. As we've been looking for this, we've never seen it. And while it's certainly true that species change, they adapt in little bits over time, their DNA fundamentally does not change. And and so we have never noticed an entirely new species coming into existence. We haven't even noticed all these supposedly beneficial random genetic changes that evolution requires. Yet evolutionists say, and they must say, that these things happen because there is no other way to make evolution work. Yet there is no documented evidence of these type of mutations and new species coming into existence. And so even evolution requires some pretty great faith, I think. And many other problems could be identified. Problems ranging from carbon dating to geological strata to things in the fields of of mathematics and philosophy and astronomy. And I encourage you to investigate these things if you're curious. There's several books. We have several in the bookstore. A couple by Lee Strobel, The Case for Christ, The Case for a Creator. Some great resources there if you want to dig into all the reasons why we can believe that God's existence is real. But the most important thing you need to know is this. The main reason why evolutionary theory has been developed in the first place is not because people have discovered evidence against God's existence. They haven't disproved God. The reason why evolutionary theories come about and people embrace it is because they don't want to believe that God is real. They're not even open to considering it. They don't want to deal with the ramifications of it. Yet they have to explain our existence somehow. And so they have faith in this theory. Because they have nowhere else to go. But friends, I would suggest to you that faith in this theory of evolution requires more faith than faith in God. Because there is great evidence for God's existence. The heavens declare his glory. And all of creation testifies to it. From the depths of the Grand Canyon to the fragility of a snowflake. From the immense diversity of life on earth to the incredible complexity of the human body. To the, the basic structure of DNA to the beauty of music and of color. Of a sunset, creation screams that God Himself exists and that He has made all that we see. And we have no good reason to doubt God's existence after seeing and considering the vast and overwhelming revelation He has given us of Himself. Don't buy into theories that supposedly explain life without God. Don't allow scientific theories that are sometimes dishonest or biased in their evaluation of evidence to sow seeds of doubt in your soul. Just use your common sense. Ask, what seems more reasonable to me? That the watch just popped into existence on its own? Or that an intelligent and very powerful creator made it? This is the first area of doubt that I hope you're experiencing some freedom, perhaps from today, doubting God's existence. And the second and last I want to handle is this. Doubt about the Bible's truthfulness. We want to be free from doubting Scripture's truthfulness. And again, like this previous subject, this is, this is one that this short message can hardly begin to, to dig into. So you need to turn to other references for a full treatment of it, because I could literally list off hundreds 
of examples where God's word has been proven true by discoveries in archaeology and history and biology and chemistry and astronomy, sociology, philosophy. But just to keep things simple, I'd like to quickly offer now eight reasons why you can and should trust in particular the Gospels of the New Testament. Because if these books are true, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, then Jesus Christ is true and his atoning death and salvation is available, that is available through him is also true. And therefore, we have great reason to believe and not doubt the message, the message of John 3.16. So eight reasons. Here, quickly we go. The first is this. The Gospels contain accurate and careful descriptions of history. Gospel writers go to great lengths to provide all sorts of rich and convincing historical details and events and scores of archaeological discoveries have confirmed the Bible's historical details from the political climate to the day to the social customs of people to the plagues that 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 the problems that plague society and economic and architectural designs over and over again the gospel's careful depiction of history have been proven true by their fields of science absolutely true second is this many eyewitnesses of Jesus were still alive when the gospels were written And they validated the gospel's claims. These eyewitnesses of Jesus, they accepted the gospels as historically accurate. And they affirmed that the gospels rightly described the events that they themselves witnessed. And if the gospels were in any way inaccurate, we would have some record of eyewitnesses disagreeing with this. But we don't. We don't have any of that. Gospels, as far as we can tell, were universally accepted as accurate descriptions of history by the people who were there themselves at those events. Point three, early opponents to Christianity made very few objections to the gospel's historical depictions, the ways the gospel gospel depicted history. Early Christianity did have many opponents, many people who wanted to crush it and destroy it and wipe it out, but they put forth very little evidence to show that Christianity was fabricated. They would have loved to do so, but they couldn't. Why? Because they didn't have the evidence to show that it was fabricated because it it wasn't. And if anything, the enemies of Christianity affirmed the key details in the Gospels were accurate with their own records. There's records even that refer to Christ outside of the Bible that that coincide with the picture presented of him in Scripture. And so the fact that early opponents didn't vigorously refute the Gospels is a great reason why we can trust them. Next point. The Gospels lack flourishes and outlandish mythologizing. What I mean by this is is that the miracles in the Bible, there are many miracles in the Bible, and they are astonishing and hard to believe uh, for some. But compared to other religious writings, the miracles in the Gospels are very believable. They seem far more reasonable and historically credible. For example, if you were to uh, study other religious books, such as Uh, The ancient Egyptian scriptures, you would see that at one point, according to those works, the gods got angry, and so they flooded the world with beer. I don't find that terribly convincing. Uh, Similarly, in the Quran, the prophet Muhammad, at one point, to show a sign, he actually kind of waved his arm and divided the moon in two and moved the two halves of the moon to opposite ends of the sky. Seems pretty fantastic. Hard to believe. And the absence of such craziness in the Gospels contributes to their historical reliability. In fact, if the Gospels were in fact fabricated, we should expect to see some of these crazy outlandish miracles. As was the case with all other religious, fabricated religious writings. But that is not true in the Gospels. And so 
builds the case for their truthfulness. Next point, there's a very short gap between the events described in the Gospels and the time that they were written. You realize the earliest Gospels were written no more than 40 years after Christ's death. Yet many ancient biographies of other people who've lived throughout time uh, were written decades or hundreds of years after their subjects died. For example, Alexander the Great, one of the great conquerors of the Mediterranean world, his biography was written more than 400 years after his death. Yet historians still consider it very historically accurate and reliable. Now, if his biography is reliable 400 years after his death, why aren't the Gospels reliable 40 years after his death? Applying the same test for truth, we should realize that the Gospels have much more validity to them. Three more points. Next one. Ancient believers in the New Testament were willing to die for its claims. In fact, most of the key people described in the Gospels died defending the stories and claims in the Gospels. We have to ask, would these people have truly given up their lives if they did not fully believe the picture of Christ as presented in these books? Would they really die for something that they knew was a lie? I find it hard to believe that they would have, and probably you do too. In addition, the gospel, in the Gospels, the disciples are constantly cast in a negative light. I don't know about you, but if I was writing a book that was going to prominently feature myself in it, I would probably build me up pretty good in the pages of that book. Not so in the Gospels, though. The disciples are constantly seen as self-seeking and as clueless. Not until the book of Acts did they begin to take on some sort of favorable qualities and have the disciples fabricated these stories. They surely would have painted a better picture of themselves. But they didn't. Why? Because they were more concerned about accurately reflecting history than by creating a movement. And lastly, some things in the Gospels are hard to explain theologically in light of established Christian doctrine. There are some difficult things to make sense of in the Gospels. Like, why was Jesus Christ baptized if he was without sin? How come, if he really was God, how come his knowledge and his power seemed limited at times? And if the Gospels were fabricated, it would stand to reason that these theologically difficult things would have been omitted so that the Gospels would be more quickly embraced and easily believed. These things weren't omitted, though. And this shows that the writers, again, were more concerned about historical accuracy than making the Gospels easy to believe in order to begin a movement. Many other things could be said. These are just eight reasons for why you can trust the Gospels, why they are historically true. And also many different evidences from Revelation that prove that God exists. I hope that these things here are building your faith and enriching it as we sit here now because soon we're going to dig into more of the gospel and how you can be certain of your salvation in Christ. And as the worship team uh, comes out now, I just want to say one final thing about evidences for our belief in Christ and the existence of God and such. And that is the most powerful evidence is probably just the witness of changed lives 